This morning we're going to wrap up the Foundations of Faith series from the first section of Genesis. Uh, We're actually going a little bit back in time. Genesis chapter 2, first three verses. One of those things when as a pastor you look back and you go, why did I skip over that? So we're going back to that this morning to look at this. Let us hear the word of our God. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day the Lord had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he had rested from all the work of creating what he had done. Why don't we pray? Father, we come to this morning... Because, uh, like the disciples, we have nowhere else to go. Because you alone have the words of life. And so we ask that you would send your word, and you would send your spirit to eliminate these scriptures, that we might know you, that we might know what you have done for us. Help us to sit and wonder at your incredible graciousness towards sinners such as us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who made us, who saves us, and who keeps us. Amen. It's hard to believe that I grew up so long ago. <laughs> you know, uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, life was very different from today. And particularly when you look at Sunday. Life is very different. Life is much busier now than it was back then. And I had the, not necessarily unique, but I had the uh, different perspective of someone who grew up on the border of New Hampshire with Massachusetts, because it was very different in New Hampshire than it was from Massachusetts. Because in Massachusetts, they still had blue laws. And so all of the stores were closed. And in New Hampshire, we didn't have blue laws. The stores, they'd be open. And so New Hampshire had this great influx of people from Massachusetts who drove up not only to take advantage of the fact that there was no sales tax, but also from the fact that they could shop on Sunday. Yeah. Kind of different, though. Stores were open later, 12, closed earlier, 5, than they were the rest of the week. So it was still a little bit different, and life was still quieter overall. I mean, people didn't go out and mow their lawns on Sunday. My family would still take the proverbial Sunday drive, which I don't know if anyone does that anymore. You know? Different then than it is now. Now it's like it's just another day of the week. Everything is open. There are very few places that have blue laws, and even the blue laws that remain are very minuscule at this point in time. Sunday is filled with busyness. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And so we, I think we rob ourselves of something in that busyness that can occur. The big idea this morning is that the Sabbath is God's gracious gift designed to help us grow. It's very different than how most people look at it. But we see this particularly in the text here in Genesis 2, and when we think about the commands that are given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that God graciously regulates work and rest. That's what's going on here. That God is regulating graciously work and rest. We see that God here has earlier has created time and that he's created its markers. Before this point in time, we heard about days, that God created night. 
and day, and so there was a 24-hour period called the day. But now God is, is creating, basically, the week. He's putting out this marker by which we mark time. We understand time. And almost every culture known to man has looked at time within that framework of a seven-day week. God establishes not just time, but he also establishes here in this text and in the, the commandments we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, what we are to do with those days. That they are made up of work and rest. And there is a rhythm in that between the work and the rest. There is a daily rhythm because it talks about how we are to work during the day and rest at night. But there's also a weekly rhythm that takes place that we find particularly in Exodus uh, 20. Six days we work, one day we rest. And so a rhythm is given to us for life. So part of that is that God graciously limits our work to six days. Now, some of us might kind of wrestle a little bit with that idea that God graciously limits our work to six days. In fact, theologian John Murray looks at the five-day work week and he thinks of this as one of the great downfalls of modern society, uh, that people are only working five days when the Scripture tells us to work six days, and to which, if he were still alive, I might say to him in a gracious manner, since he would be my father in the faith. But, but John, isn't there a day for us to do our work in our homes? That there are things to maintain in our homes? And shouldn't we have a day in which we are able to do that as well? Does God somehow want us to cram that into Sunday or to make us so busy at night that we're working on projects? Okay, It's okay for us to work at our vocations five days and one on our homes. So anyway, that's my little take on that. But God graciously limits our work to five days. And in a sense, this ought to humble us. It ought to humble us to think that we have six days to provide for ourselves, and sometimes we think that's not enough. That somehow we need more time in order to humble, uh, to provide for ourselves and for our families. And God says, uh, no. Six is enough. Six will mean that you also have to trust me to provide for you. There's a built-in mechanism by which we are called to trust him and say, you know, I can't work seven days a week. I can't work as much as I might like to work to get all the things that I might want to have. And God says, trust me. I made you. I know how I made you. And I made you to also partake of rest. Not just in the evening, but also a day to rest. We rest because he rested, first and foremost. Isn't that strange to think that God rested? Now it says here in the text that he rested from the work of creation. He did not, he did not rest completely. Okay? It's not like God took a big snooze on the seventh day okay, and didn't pay attention to what was going on. Like every seventh day, we're sort of in this strange situation where we're not sure what's going to happen because God has left control of the universe. Jesus affirms that every day his Father works. But the work of creation was done. The work of providence continues every day. And so God continues to maintain, to uphold the universe by the power of his word every day. If he rested utterly and completely, it would all fall apart. And so he holds it together 
and also he rules over it through providence. But his, from his work of creation, he ceased. That's really the part of the idea behind Sabbath, behind rest, is to cease and desist, to stop your activity, particularly to stop your vocation. And that is the idea that is the word the idea that is behind these words is the idea of a vocation, of a calling, of an occupation. And so it, it doesn't mean that we're not to do anything, but it means that we are to cease from the labor that provides for our well-being. To cease from our occupations, which, from which we occupy ourselves, that we do things the rest of the week. We rest, we enjoy this holy inactivity because he first rested. And we see that, that idea that we are to reflect who he is as made in his image. We're to do that. Just as we reflect the fact that God works, we also reflect the fact that God rests. Not only that, but it's the scripture says... Um, you know that, that God is affirming our finitude. That he's affirming our need to rest, and this is a good thing. The USSR tried an experiment once. They decided we're not being productive enough. Let's go to an eight-day week with seven days of work. It failed <laughs> miserably. Production went down. Do you want to know why production went down? Specifically because they violated the creation ordinance. They violated how we're made. It's not just about this kind of works nicely, but it's, it, it works for us because God has made us in this particular fashion. And when we try to violate the way in which we were made, we're doomed to fail. And so it failed precisely because it pushed people too hard, too long. And they were not able to partake of the rest that God intended for them. So not only does God rest, but we also see from the text that he blessed the day. And we recognize this idea of blessing is not just, it's a nice day. You know, like we sometimes think we bless people, you know, have a nice day. But this is a word of power, a communication of empowerment. And so God, in some way that we cannot really understand, gives power to this day to refresh and restore people. There is something about ceasing from your labor that is meant to be restorative to the body. Gives it time to heal from the hard work that may have been taking place. For those of you who sit behind desks all day, it's time for your back to do something different than sit. But we think even about athletes and what happens with athletes is that they can often so stress their bodies out that they need time to rest and their body to heal and recuperate. And that's kind of the idea of what's going on here. God has made each of you that your bodies need time to rest and recuperate. And he gives us a day. He graciously gives us a day as our creator to enjoy the restorative rest that we need. What's interesting is that we also talk about Exodus 20, the fourth commandment that we studied, which is also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And, and Moses anticipates what's going to happen with, the, with God's people there by giving a, the reality, the, inst, the institution of the Sabbath here in Genesis chapter 2. They're almost identical in the wording. He points back to creation right there, but something is added in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And what is added in Exodus and Deuteronomy is the fact that the Lord delivered them from Egypt with his strong hand. And so for them, 
And for us, it is not just about creation, it is also about redemption. It is a day in which we, we celebrate redemption. He, he makes it holy, he sets it apart for a different purpose, and part of that is that redemptive purpose. That it is, it is a day of redemptive rest, not just restorative rest. What does that mean? I know I've talked with people in the past uh, when I was in, living in Orlando, and, and sometimes people with the burdens of modern life can often begin to think, I don't have time to pray. I, I don't have time to read the scriptures. I don't have time to study theology. I've got you know, books to read, you know, and I never have time to do these things. Part of the time that we have to do these things is in the day that the Father gave us. He gave us a whole day to pursue Him and to seek Him. A gracious provision that we might seek grace, that we we seek it not just in the public worship, but we also seek it in our private worship. That this is a day which which He has given us that we can take a nap, and we can pray. We can enjoy hospitality with others, but we can also read the scriptures. We can meditate upon them because you don't have to go to work today. We can read those books of theology and practical Christian living that have been sitting upon our our shelves that we might receive grace, that we might be transformed by the work of Christ. He's given us a day. In which that takes place. And so while our lives may be very hectic Monday through Saturday, He has graciously given us a day where we can can choose to leave that aside and seek Him. So the Sabbath is a sign both of creation and redemption. It's God's gracious provision to us as His creatures, but also as the ones that He saves, His people. So what's gone wrong? Well, we as people tend to go in two extremes, and uh, one of them is legalism. And what happens is that legalism steals the joy of the Sabbath. And we see this particularly in Mark 2, but we see it in other places in the New Testament. And what happened is that during the exile, the weekly synagogue worship developed. Remember, they're, they're cast out of the land. And oddly enough, one of the reasons they were cast out of the land from the prophets is that they failed to celebrate the Sabbath. They didn't rest. And they didn't use the Sabbath rest years for the land. And so God says, guess what? If you wouldn't let the land rest, I'm going to let it rest. And he sent them out of the land. And he sent them to places like Babylon and Assyria. And so what happens there is that the synagogue worship begins to develop. Rabbis begin to take a prominent place in the life and culture of Israel. They didn't have those before the exile. They had the Levites and the priests. And now something very different. The worship of the people changes a little bit. And, and what happens in this is that the Mishnah develops, and so that this, which is kind of a commentary on the law. And part of this Mishnah is that there were two what they call tractates that were dedicated to the Sabbath and, oddly enough, the defining of work. Does that strike you as strange? Do you need someone to define work for you? 
If I were to ask you what's work, I think you could probably come up with a pretty good definition. You know when you're working and you know when you're not. And yet, this is the strange process that takes place in the human heart that, uh, of legalism that seeks to define work. And it takes it into strange places. And so what happened is that Sabbath-keeping, which was meant to be a delight, which was meant to bring joy to God's people, often became a burden instead. An instance. Mark Driscoll uh, recalls a recent trip he made to Israel. And he's in a hotel, and he gets on the elevator, and he forgets that it is Saturday, the Sabbath. And he doesn't know that there are different elevators. And he makes the mistake of getting on the Shabbat elevator. He's sitting on the elevator, and he recognizes that no one is pressing a button, and that it's stopping on every floor, even though people aren't getting out. And so he turns to some of the people who are on the elevator with him, and he goes, why is this stopping on every floor? And they say, this is the Shabbat elevator. He goes, okay. It's work to press the button. Okay. Remember how they have all these definitions of work? Well, now that is work. Okay. And so to keep people from violating the Sabbath by going like that, it stops on every floor. And so if you want to get off, you get off and want to get on, you get on. And so he ends up going, is there one for the goy, the Gentile? They go, oh yes, it's the next one right over. So the next time the elevator opens, he gets off, presses the button, it opens up, he gets in, and what happens is, all the Jews followed him into the elevator. (laughs) And they say, could you please press floor number nine? They had no problem with him working. But they weren't going to work on the Sabbath. Okay? And so we see what legalism does is it creates these strange little rules that create burdens for people that have no real reflection of what the Scripture teaches. Okay? The Sabbath ends up, because of these things, a, a battleground between Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, why don't we just go to to Mark chapter 2 for a moment to see how some of this plays out. And I've gone too far. See, I was paying attention to what I was saying to you and not this. 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Okay, they're accusing them of harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Okay, they're hungry, there's no restaurant nearby, and if there was, it would be closed because it is the Sabbath. Okay, so these guys are doing what is provided for them through the gleaning laws. They're taking some heads of grain, they're getting the chafe off, and they're getting ready to eat these heads of grain that they might be sustained on the Lord's Sabbath. He answered them, and obviously it's interesting, what are the Pharisees doing in the field following Jesus and his his disciples around? So, here we go. He answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days, days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And so what Jesus is saying is, what about David? 
David did something that the ceremonial law prohibited from doing because he had a need. That the ceremonial law did not take precedence over that need. They did not condemn David for feeding himself nor his men from the food that the Levites and the priests were supposed to eat. Then he says this, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so where Jesus goes with this, at the last part of that, is to, to declare that he is the Son of Man, the eschatological Son of Man that we find in Daniel, who is the eternal Son of God, who is going to judge all of humanity. They don't realize that's who he is. And so imagine that for a moment. He's telling them, do you want to know who you're judging? The one who judges everyone. Do you want to know who you're judging? You're judging the one who made the Sabbath. The one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you really knew what you were doing, you wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> okay, that, that, That's part of what's going on there in that text. And so it's a, it was a big battleground. Because the, the legalism of the Pharisees was stealing the joy of the people from the Sabbath that God had given them. And it's the same sort of way today. We find this in, in different places. I, okay, We'll pick on the Presbyterians for a moment, since we are they. A friend of mine was, doing a, was working before seminary on the staff of a church, a Presbyterian church. And part of what he had to do as a requirement for being on staff was to say... I will not buy gasoline for my car on Sunday. There were other things that were in there that would qualify as legalism as well. But it was kind of strange. It's, it's like, you know, you had to make sure and check, you know, to go, go outside and check, make sure you had enough gas to get to church on Saturday so that you wouldn't violate your contract. Okay? Regardless of what might pop up in between those two days, or if you've driven some cars, don't always have an accurate gauge. So I guess it would just be easy to fill up on Saturday. But it's binding people's consciences by something that's not really there in Scripture. Because that's not work. That's not your occupation. That's not how you provide pumping gas. It's saying, it's okay to drive your car, which would go beyond the Sabbath day journey most likely. It's okay to drive your car, but it's not okay to put gas in your car. Does that, that kind of make sense? Well, I think we saw the blue laws a little bit in Florida, and this is kind of an interesting one, where you couldn't buy beer on, sat, on Sunday except after noon. So once 12 o'clock hit, if you wanted to watch the football game and you realized you didn't have any beer, you could finally go to Walmart or wherever go get yourself some beer. But if you decided that you wanted to have a pina colada with the ball game, you couldn't. Because you can't buy hard liquor on Sunday. Okay, It's a strange, weird blue law. And this is what legalism produces. Things that don't really connect and make sense. Okay, It is man trying to do something in addition to what God has already done and decreed. And so Jesus says that he is Lord over the Sabbath. And what he does in declaring that is he declares that he's restoring the proper relationship between man and the Sabbath. 
that he, not the rabbis, is the one who properly understood the Sabbath and its purposes. And so he puts it right back where it belongs. He says that you were not made to keep the Sabbath rules. The Sabbath was made to keep you. The Sabbath was made to restore you. Both in creation and in redemption. That's what he means by this. You were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. It was made for our benefit. We were not made to slavishly keep some sorts of rules about this rest. It was made to restore us physically through rest, and so we keep it by stop working. Again, you know what work is. It's not pushing the button on the elevator. It's your occupation for which that provides for your well-being. And so the Sabbath says, stop. Rest. It's kind of interesting when you have young kids. Take a nap. <laughs> Take a nap. We're inviting them to rest. I would love to take a nap every day. (laughs) I envy people who are able to take naps every day. You'd think we were inviting them to take out the garbage or wash all the windows. I don't want to do that. It's rest. Rest. And some of us, we're not the legalists. We're the ones who go to the other extreme, and we don't want to stop working. Because we think it all depends upon us. And so the idea of, of resting means that we might miss something, that we might not attain something, and therefore we have to keep working and neglect our rest. Let's not be like children with naps. Let us warmly embrace the rest that he calls us to. And so as a result of that, I think recreation has a place in the restoration of the body and mind, just like naps do. The the commandment does not say you shall spend all daylight hours in worship. It doesn't say that. The commandment has to do with rest. Stop. And if we think that we have to, people have to only worship on Sunday, or only worship and eat, or only worship, eat, and take naps... I think that we were starting to do what the Pharisees did, and we're starting to make all kind of laws to decide what people can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Instead of saying, rest. <laughs> Does anyone need, you know, three pages of documents to figure out what it means to rest? I think we all know that, right? It's not hard to know what it means to rest. But God also made it uh, to restore us spiritually through grace. And so, in addition to stopping working, we start worshiping. Now, you might just go, Steve, you, did, you just said we don't have to spend all day in worship. What are you saying? Saying that we should worship as part of the reality of redemption. But we don't want to say, you know, you, know, you need to have, be at this service and at this service and at this service. There is more to the day of rest than worship. Not less, but there is more. 
I'm finding that Tim Kellerism very meaningful these days. Not less, but more. Worship is an essential part of the Sabbath rest for his people. But that's not all it is. That's part of why when the Jews celebrated the Sabbath before all the legalism came in, that was the meal, the day that they had the best meal. Kind of like there used to be that Sunday dinner, which was like the best meal because you had like all day to cook it. That's kind of what happened here before all of the legalists took over. That was one of the best meals. Uh, and there were other things that they did on the Sabbath that they didn't do the rest of the week that, or as often on the rest of the week that made it a great day of blessing for God's people. And so, uh, unfortunately, humanity tends to turn the gift into a form of works righteousness and sort of steals the blessing of the day of rest from God's people. Okay, so we've seen that God graciously regulates work and rest. He's not a slave driver. That legalism steals the joy of the Sabbath. But let's see that faith enters the Sabbath rest that Jesus provides. And I'm getting this from Matthew 11 and Hebrews chapter 4. Now, part the first part is Matthew 11. Is that our restless world is, is really, it, it's seeking rest, but it, it, it's relentless in its pursuit of rest. We weary ourselves in leisure, don't we, a lot of times? People come back from their vacations, and what do they need? A vacation. <laughs> because, you know, I'll say this because I don't do any of these things. You know, they go skiing, and they come back from skiing, and their body needs to recuperate from all the skiing they did. Okay? On their vacations. We tend to go on vacation and, and stress ourselves out in magnificent ways and wonder why we can't go to work on Monday morning when we get back. We're relentless, so to speak, in our pursuit of leisure. And so people often look for rest in all of the wrong places, and many forms of our, our rest and leisure actually end up making us more tired. And so that, that's something that each of us on an individual basis can ask ourselves, because I can't make a rule for you, but you can learn what makes you tired, what makes you weary, such that when Monday morning comes, you don't want to go to work, because you're too worn out. And maybe you say, I shouldn't do that on, on that particular day. I can do it on Saturday. Something like that. Or I don't need to go on vacation to do that the entire time. Okay? So Jesus says to these weary people, these people who have been laboring under the law, these people who have been laboring under the different requirements of the Pharisees, that those who are weary come to me and I will give you rest. Rest. He says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And he's really contrasting himself with the Pharisees at this point. Because they had a rule for everything. They had pages. Work. This is what it is. Leisure. That's what it is. They had all of this stuff, and Jesus is saying, you know what? It's pretty simple. Come to me, and I will give you rest. This rest is not automatic, because there's conditionality there. 
come to me. If we will not come to him by faith, trust, submission, we do not partake of the rest. So maybe that's why some of us are so stressed out, so we do not come to him by faith. We do not come in submission. We, we come sort of wanting to have Jesus in our own way too. It's Jesus says, just come. This points to the reality that from the Pharisees, this, this light burden reveals the other side is that religion wears people out. I'm very concerned for the American church culture because you look at a lot of churches and they're so busy. They're wearing people out. They're not providing restoration. They're just providing copies of what everyone else is doing in the world. (laughs) And so you, you could be there three, four nights a week if you wanted to. I'm not really sure that's what Jesus had in mind. Jesus restores people. He's not seeking to wear them out and destroy them. And so we rest in God's presence, and we're able to rest precisely because of the work that Jesus did for us. Let's look at it this way in terms of a, of a dinner. There's two ways you can approach dinner. One is the approach of someone who needs to gain the approval and acceptance of another. Think of it for a minute of, this doesn't happen much anymore, I don't think. But it used to be, you know, husband would call honey from, home, from work. Uh, the boss wants to come over for dinner. What does she do? She knows that her husband's career is on the line, and so she seeks to make this the most incredible, delicious meal she has ever made. Uh, back in the day, she may have picked up Julia Childs and tried to create something there. I don't know. But she feels the pressure to gain acceptance and approval. Or if you want to do it a different way, the mother-in-law is coming. Hey, how's that one, huh? I want to be the great wife for her, hus- for her son. Stressing out. That's how some people approach worship. That somehow that we have to generate all this stuff so that we will fu- somehow find approval in God's sight. That, that we've got to sing our songs just the right way. That we must pray just the right way. That we must make everything perfect just the right way so that we will, we will receive God's approval. And what Jesus says is, I already did it. You don't have to stress. You're more like the person who shows up for dinner unexpected, and it's just there, and you enjoy it, and you talk and enjoy company. That's really what worship is kind of like. Not that we should be lackadaisical about it, but our accept- the acceptance of our worship has been purchased by Jesus, not how good we do things. And so when we come to worship, it should be restful, it should be restorative. It shouldn't be an occasion for stress. And so when we come to worship, we, we cease from the works of the law and we look to the work that Jesus did and find hope in Him. Okay? Jesus works not just for us, but He also works in us that we might experience that rest, that we might enjoy that day of rest. In other words, He works in us 
so that we actually rest. That process of sanctification. That we are able to then kind of go, yeah. I can relax. I don't have to keep up appearances. I don't have to make my own way. I don't have to provide for myself seven days a week. I can rest in Christ. Not only that, but we see from Hebrews particularly that there is a rest that remains, and that rest that remains is an everlasting rest. We, re- we enter that rest, as it says in that chapter in Hebrews a couple different times, by faith and by faith alone. But here's the thing, that each Lord's Day we get a foretaste of that. If the, uh, the late Old Testament professor Meredith Klein were here, he would say, that the Lord's Day is an intrusion of the eternal rest of the saints. Meaning, each Lord's Day that we come and we worship, it's as if the eternal rest just kind of flows over into that day and we partake of it by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, every seven days we are meant to get a taste a foretaste, an appetizer of heaven. Nothing can contain it. It flows over and it flows into this day. Every Sunday is something that we should partake in that, that particular way. So, and in that day, he then works to transform us because we're, we're transformed, what does the scriptures say? By gazing upon him. And like Moses, we're transformed as we see the glory of God. And one of the things that happens here is we should be seeing the glory of God in His work for us in Jesus Christ, and thereby we are transformed. He not only works for us and not only worked in us, but He also works through us so that we might provide refreshment for others. And that was part of the other aspect that Jesus talked about in terms of the Lord's Day. It was a time to show mercy. There was another one of those experiences. He's got the man with the crippled hand, and the Pharisees are watching him. What's he going to do? Is he going to work and heal that guy's hand? Now, there was a provision within the law that if someone was in danger, if their life was in danger, you could work to save them. This man's hand was not a life-threatening condition. So from the Pharisees' perspective... Jesus is about to do evil by healing this man's hand. And so he asked the Pharisees, is the Sabbath for doing good or evil? He healed the man, and they went and plotted his death on the Sabbath. And so there's a place for doing good, for showing mercy and compassion upon the Sabbath on the day of rest. And so God works through us to provide refreshment and restoration to others as well. And so sometimes when we come and we worship, what we'll do is we'll find someone who needs encouragement and we'll grant them encouragement. We'll find someone who is lonely and we provide them hospitality. Say, you know, come over for lunch and let's pray for you. So these are ways in which we can apply this, this way in which Jesus extends his rest through us. So the day of rest is God's gracious gift, pointing us 
to both creation and redemption. And though some neglect it, and, or, and some fill it with rules, Jesus offers the true everlasting rest that is found only through faith in him. And so the question that bounces back on all of us this morning is, what are you doing? Are you resting or are you laboring? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gracious gift of a day to cease from our labor, to cease from our occupations, and to rest in your gracious promises. Help us to do just that. It is so contrary to who we are outside of Christ that we need your help to do that in Christ. We are prone to keep working, even if it means turning a delight into a burden. And so help us to turn to you, to receive the restoration you have designed in this day through both creation and redemption, to the praise of your glorious grace. And we ask this in the name of the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself. Amen.